Thank you for listening to this live recording presented by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this recording, President of VESA, Ruth Flarty, introduces Professor Martin Westwell to discuss STEM and the arts, assimilation, integration or multiculturalism as part of the 2017 VESA Winter Solstice Conference. Hi, I'm Ruth Flaherty and I'm the President of VESA and I'd like to thank Kylie and Ryan and the Art Gallery of South Australia for allowing us to use this wonderful venue again. Um, it's just fantastic that we could use this and tomorrow Mark Kimber allowing us to use UniSA for our workshops. I'd like to now introduce our keynote speaker, Martin Wessel, Westwell, as it's spelt. Um, Martin is the director of the Flinders Centre for Science Education in the 21st century. The centre applies uh, an evidence-based approach to teaching and learning with a focus on mathematics and science education. But don't let that phase you, art teachers. He's very good on the creative thinking. Um, the centre works with a number of states and territories, nationally and internationally, to support the development of quality teaching and innovation. And the, uh, that actually applies to one of our uh, local secondary schools as well, which Flinders University is allied to. He has won a number of awards for communicating science to non-scientists. So if you're a non-scientist in the audience, you'll have some good communication happening here. Um, including in 1999 being named by the Times newspaper as Scientist of the New Century. Congratulations. Martin moved to South Australia in 2007 and has two boys who attend public schools. <laughs> I knew that would get a hooray. <laughs> uh, Martin is interested in the use of evidence-informed practice and decision-making in education and research about the translation of evidence and laboratory science in, into education in an ecologically valid way. In early years education and development, Martin has worked with educators to co-construct an understanding of children's cognitive development, particularly focusing on executive functions, a strong predictor of positive outcomes at school and beyond. So you can see that Martin's heart and soul is about education and outcomes, and um, included in that is the use of creative thinking, critical and creative thinking, which is one of our uh, priorities with debt and with one of our um, avenues for today of your thinking. So please welcome Martin. I'm sure you'll enjoy his presentation. <laughs> Thanks, Ruth. Morning, everyone. Um, so I, I am a scientist. I have a science background. The work that we do at Flinders is, in fact, split into two. One is about science education, science and maths education, and the other is we're part of the National Science of Learning Research Centre. So that's the science of learning. So we do the learning of science and the science of learning, the neuroscience and the cognitive science of learning. Um, so I am a scientist, but I do um, like to collaborate and challenge myself with the arts. Arts, for me, wasn't a big thing when I was growing up. Um, I grew up in a mining town in, in the UK, and arts really wasn't a thing for us. Um, it was very kind of technical, tradey kind of place. Um, and, and now I do try and challenge myself with the art. So, uh, for, for example, I'm the scientist in residence at Patch Theatre. Um, and so working together there on the development of shows and their new show that's just about to start, about, um, that is called Your Diddle Diddle. It's the story of the, the backstory of the Hey Diddle Diddle nursery rhyme. 
Um, but there's a theme of resilience through that, and we've been working together on that. And so from those experiences, you know, I certainly wouldn't claim to be an expert in the arts, but I do want to talk about, in a kind of collaborative way, some of the ideas and think about how we're interpreting them and how you might be interpreting them. And so when we're talking about STEM and the arts, you know, I want to do, I want to have this focus on the arts, but I want to ask this question. When we're talking about STEM, is it, and the arts, means even science, technology, engineering, and maths, and the arts, is it about assimilation, is it integration, or is it multiculturalism? What, where, are we, where are we coming at this from? Um, the, my slides, that's the link, I'll put it up again at the end if you're interested, that's the link to the slides, you might want to see the slides before before you decide whether or not they're interested. Um, uh, um, first of all, what I'm going to do is, um, some people were very kind and um, took a risk and took a pack of Eclipse Chewy Mints off me um, when we, just before we started. In the Chewy Mints, um, in the Chewy Mints uh, uh, boxes, there are Chewy Mints. They look like this, little Chewy Mints. And what I want you to do while I'm talking is just... Um, just Decide how many chewments you think are in the are in the uh, in the tub in the uh, in the box. You can you can do whatever you want, shake them, smell them, do whatever you want, but don't open the box. So um, those people who've got one, if you have a go at it and then pass it on to the next person, and hopefully by the time I want to get to the where we were, where we need it, everyone will have had a go at deciding how many mints there are. So just give it a shake, can move it around. Don't worry about whatever noise it makes or whatever as we're, as we're going. Um, one of the things I don't want to talk about is this, and I don't want to talk about it so much that I've got to talk about it. Um, this idea of science, STEM, and arts being on different sides of the brain. It's an, an enormous neuromyth. It's one of the biggest... Oops, let me go back one. It's one of the biggest neuromyths that we have. It's certainly true that when things like logic and aspects of speech and even some aspects of analytical thinking are perhaps more on the left than on the right, um, and then on the right, things like some spatial abilities and some aspects of visual imagery might be on the right side of the brain, but you use almost all of your brain all of the time. The idea of left brain thinking or right brain thinking that the left brain is to do with science and maths, and the right brain is to do with arts and music, is, an, is, is a nonsense. It's a, it's a fallacy. We use all of our brains all of the time. And that's important. In fact, um, when you look at the, res the, the references that were used to put this poster together, the, the uh, resolution wasn't there for me to be able to... Um, show you those, so I just printed them out again. All those references, when you actually go to them and read them, actually say you can't consider the brain is to be two halves, an analytical science brain and a right um, arts brain. Um, even this one from the OECD, actually the, the title of the page is Neuromyth. This idea of having left brain and right brain. It's definitely that different bits of your brain do different jobs, but they don't do them in isolation. They work together. And that working together, I think, is super important. Okay, that's what I'm not going to talk about. Let's go to what I did want to talk about. This is a new biochemistry building at Oxford University. Um, it's a research space, 
And when they um, built this building, they put out a press release. You can see the shape of the building, what they've got in the middle of these social spaces in the middle, these connections between floors. On each floor, they've got the offices around the auditorium, around the atrium. And then on the outside, they've got the labs. The labs are the farthest thing away. And that was important to them, because when you look at what they had to say about the development of this building, was that what they were trying to do was they were trying to achieve this interdisciplinary working, where you could get this exchange of ideas in a collaborative environment. So they put the people together and put the labs far away. Because um, what they were doing was they were trying to get this space to enable the research groups to fo focus on their cutting-edge work in these state-of-the-art laboratories. They would go off to their laboratories to do their lab stuff, to their discipline, their knowledge and know-how. They'd do that um, in the labs. But actually, they also wanted this interdisciplinary working. And they've got 300, over 300 researchers in this building. And they've all different flavors of scientists, um, and, but again, they've got these different flavors of scientists, but what they want is this interdisciplinary nature of scientific research. Not with these people doing things in boxes, this demarcation, but coming together, and they wanted thinking spaces for the ideas to work together. And what they wanted was the conversations that wouldn't otherwise take place. They built a building around the conversations that wouldn't otherwise take place. And so when you think about the scientists that they've got there, they've got lots of different scientists, but what they're not are generalists. They're not all a bit good at everything. They've got their disciplinary expertise. They've all got a different flavor. They might know a little bit about each other's thing, but they've all got their individual discipline. And that individual disciplinary knowledge is crucially important. Because if you're going to have a conceptual development, they're doing it in terms of research, I'm now talking about it in terms of education. If you're going to have a conceptual development, you're going to build on an idea and build on an idea, you have to have a thread going through. Otherwise, we end up with lots of bits of pieces of activity and bits of pieces of learning. We don't develop the kids. We don't develop the researchers. You've got to have those disciplines to have that thread through to get that conceptual understanding. Yep. And so, yes, they've got these different flavors, but they've also created a space where those different people can come together and can build off each other's thinking. They've each got their own expertise, but they come together. That's what STEM looks like. That's what STEM in the world looks like, these different disciplines coming together. And so if we think about it in terms of education, for me, I think it's very important that students have disciplinary knowledge. It might not be the disciplines that are in the curriculum. It might be other disciplines. It might be disciplines that take a bit of this and a bit of that. But there's, a, there's threads running through. There's a conceptual development upon which we can build and we can build. But what we're looking for with that disciplinary knowledge, is the ability to have interdisciplinary action, to work together, to be able to communicate, to be able to see things in different ways. And so in that disciplinary knowledge and interdisciplinary action, we want our ways of thinking, 
Our ways of thinking, our each discipline's way of thinking is important to us. It's culturally important, it's educationally important, it's conceptually important. We have our ways of thinking and we need to hold on to those. But what, we, what the world is demanding of us more and more is to understand that there are other ways of thinking and that those other ways of thinking might be valuable to us. And so if I go back and ask this question about, are we talking about, when we're talking about STEM and STEAM, putting the A into STEM, are we talking about being assimilated, integrated, or multicultural? For me, if we're assimilated, we become the other. And if we're going to put the arts into STEM, and the arts become STEM, we'll have lost the arts. So it can't be assimilation, because we'll become the other. The political drive at the moment, you know, to have such a focus on STEM... Um, worries me, even as a science and maths educator, worries me that we're overdoing it and we're misinterpreting it. If we pull the arts towards STEM, we'll have lost the arts. So it can't be assimilation for me. This is my opinion. It can't be assimilation. It can't be integration either. And particularly for education, it can't be integration. Because if it's integration, the kids won't know what's what. It, it all comes together. One of the kind of things that happens in STEM, one of the kind of stereotypes in STEM is that, you know, we do a thing and we build a bridge. And we can point to the science and the maths and the engineering and the technology and the design and the building of the bridge. And then we go and do another thing where we make another thing and we can point to the science and technology and the engineering and the maths in it. And look, there it is. And then we go, but for the kids, in the kids' minds, what we're getting is lots of bits and pieces. We've done an activity and then we do another activity and then we do another activity. We've not got that drawing through of the threads. So for me, it's got to be multicultural. This idea of holding on to our ways of thinking, but for the kids to be getting better, being able to pivot between them. When we had STEM, what happened, particularly in Korea and some places in the US, was that they wanted to add design to it. So if you look at the history of STEM and STEAM, they wanted to add design to it. And in design, they had a D that didn't really fit in with the other letters. <laughs> so, what, so what are you going to do with that? So they made it into an A, and it caused confusion. Because actually what happened was, the A in STEAM was the D of design, but because it didn't fit, they could just call it arts. It was an enormous misunderstanding, a, a purposeful misinterpretation of what the arts were. The A in STEAM started with design. It need not be that anymore, but it started with design. And that set us off on the, in the wrong track. And so now we've got this confusion between what, uh, how the arts might be incorporated into STEM. And again, by putting it in and even putting it in an acronym and calling it a word, the worry for me is that we look at it as an, as an assimilated or an integrated way rather than a multicultural way where if the different flavors of scientists are working together, when we put the arts in there, that the artist is also... She's got her own space, her own way of thinking, but she can interact with. There's connections between. They're seeing where they're similar, they're seeing where they're different, and they're working together. So let's have a look at an example. Um, this is the science curriculum. Um, all the way through from foundation 
to, uh, I'll show you from foundation through to um, year six or seven. Um, I'm going to pick out the biological sciences. Actually, you know what? I can't help myself. I wasn't going to talk about this, but I can't help myself. Um, here we go. Let me just point this one bit out down here. Foundation achievement standard. It's my favorite achievement standard. I'm sure you've all got a favorite achievement standard. The, um, by the end of foundation, students describe the properties and behavior of familiar objects. Describe the properties and behavior. They suggest how the environment affects them and other living things. If I tell my foundation kids how the environment affects them and other living things, and they tell me that back, they've not met the achievement standard. The achievement standard says, suggest. It's about possibilities. It's not about knowing. The describe is about knowing. If you're going to hit that achievement standard, you've got to know something. The suggest, actually, you probably do have to know something to be able to suggest. But if the kids suggest to me something that is wrong but they've got a good reason for suggesting it, they've met the achievement standard. They've smashed it. It's an A. But they've not... Because they're talking about possibilities. The achievement standard is asking for possibilities. And yet, all over the country, this is interpreted as they describe how the environment affects them and other living things. I'll tell them, they'll tell me, and that will be okay. It's not okay. Anyway, <laughs> let's go back to biological sciences. So biological sciences, as you can see, there's a thread all the way through. Um, it talks about living things having basic needs in reception. Year one, living things have a variety of external features. And it goes all the way through, and you can pick out this thread. If I take all those descriptors and just put them in a, in a row, what you can see is an unfolding story about living things. They've got needs, they've got features, they grow and they have an offspring. You can group them based on those features. They've got life cycles, they've got features, and those features are adaptations that help them survive. Uh, the survival of living things are affected by physical conditions, and we can classify them. I could tell this to students, and it would be mind-numbing. It would be boring, yes. Um, and if we think about the, but if we think about it in different ways, oh, I did that in case we had a small screen, but we've got an excellently large screen. Let's pick out year five. Living things have structural features and adaptations that help them to survive in their environment. Um, I subscribe to a site with resources, and I've, I've, I've redacted it because I don't want to actually have a go at this particular site. But this is a this is a kind of standard resource that exists. And I'd want to kill myself if I was a kid in this class. Um, you know, it's, you know, oh, God. You know, and even the diagram, people will tell, you know, so we're drawing, no, no, there's all kinds wrong with this. It, you, know, it's get, it's, you know, it's meeting the achievement standard, but it's got all kinds wrong with it. Even the things that are on the uh, curriculum website. This is um, the, an example from the website. And what we're doing is, you know, list three animals and the phys physical adaptation and how it's important. I'm going to tell you something and then you are going to write it on this piece of paper. And that's how we're going to, that's how we're going to do things. There's, a good, there's a, um, an activity in, in here. In the activity, what they do is they go outside and on the grass, they, they put um, coloured sticks or something and you go around and you look for the coloured sticks. And what they're looking for is that the green ones are harder to find. And so it's a whole contrivance with data collection and all kinds of things to that's about camouflage, 
Kids get camouflage, and actually this activity doesn't really help that much either. But we get to do all this plotting and things. Because we're doing what is. We're not talking about what's possible. So let's talk about what's possible. Do you know these? These are flanimals. Ricky Gervais's flanimals. They're obviously not real animals. But they, but they are what's possible. So these flanimals... Um, this one staggers around half-witted and grumpy, trying to start trouble. Um, this, is a, this is a cowardly wobbler, and it spends all day avoiding this one. We've got um, um, other animals that do other things. So we've got a description of the animals. If we go a bit deeper, what we've also got is some of the behaviours. This thing rushes around on its wobbly pod... And it's looking where it's been and never where it's going. And it dies eventually because it bumps into one of these. All these possibilities that are in there. So if we take the possibilities um, that are in there in the curriculum, we can use those possibilities of the features that those animals have got and the adaptations that those animals have got that are not real, and we can put them in the hands of the kids and ask them to interpret that to produce something that is imaginative but stays within the possibilities. You don't have to teach this stuff because the kids will come up with it themselves. This is a year five kid and what the teacher did was that she described to them some flanimals and what she asked them to do was to produce a diorama of an animal um, with adaptation in a particular environment and what it would need to live in that environment. The kids produced, um, produced uh, an animal and a description of the animal. This one is spongy. He's very low on the food chain and birds eat him. So he lives in a cave in the jungle and eats worms and slugs and other creepy crawlies. He can climb trees, hibernates through the winter. He can hide from predators by crawling on the soft layers of dirt or leaves on the jungle floor. That was never coming out of that worksheet <laughs> we saw before. What we've done is we've taken and an, uh, we're looking through the possibilities that the arts allow for and looking at the science curriculum. There's the possibility of the, of the arts and the science curriculum that's starting to show us, as sh- starting as a teacher, to show us where the kid's thinking is. I can see the kid's thinking rather than imposing my thinking on it. What we get, of course, isn't this assimilation or this integration. We've got this multiculturalism. We've got this pivoting between the two, thinking about it through an arts point of view, thinking about it from a science point of view. And what we see is that the diversity of responses that you get from the students when you do this produce student dialogue. And we know that that student-student dialogue is one of the most powerful things that you can do in terms of developing uh, young people's achievement And that not only is it a high-impact strategy, it's a high-equity strategy. It works even more, whenever we get student-student dialogue going, it works even more for our low-performing, low-SES students than it does for our higher-performing, high-SES students, but it works for everyone. Meta-analysis show that that student-student dialogue is so important. And the diversity of responses that we get allows for that dialogue What we also see are kids talking to each other about the adaptations, the structural features that their animals have got. So they can see, oh, yours has got, why has yours got one of those? Why is its tail so big or small? Or why is its legs, oh, because, 
blah, blah, blah. And the kids think, I'm going to have one of them. Great. And they'll go and put it on their animal. And then they'll, they'll put the animals together and say, look, my animal's a carnivore and it eats your, your animal. Right, mine's having wings, sticking wings on. Mine can get away from yours. Now, right, if yours is having wings, mine's having wings. And so the animals evolve as the animals get together and you put them together. In, in a, the narrative that emerges is driven by the kids. And as a teacher, we can take hold of that narrative and intentionally bring out the aspects of the curriculum. I want the kids to go back to be able to transfer these ideas. If they can't transfer the ideas that they get in any learning area, what's the point of it? We're just doing activities. I want them to transfer these ideas. So now these ideas that they've got from an arts approach, I want them to transfer and to see those ideas in the real world. In an, in an ecosystem in the real world. I want that transfer because I want them to be transferers. I want them to be able to see it in the real world. And in the future, when they need that idea, I want them to go back and think about their flannimal and to transfer those ideas from the art into their real world. So they're thinking about what's possible, not be limited by what they know or what they're told. There are many ways for educators to enact this shift from telling to asking. And in the, in the arts science space, science is about asking questions. It always is. But culturally, and the way that people interpret the curriculum through the content first, we do a lot of telling. And shifting from telling to asking is that pivot from science to arts. It allows for that dialogue and that different thinking. I'm not going to talk about that. I want to move on because I want to get us to somewhere else. I'm just, I put too many ideas in. I was so excited about talking with you. Um, yes, okay. Uh, I'm going to skip forward a little bit. Uh, oh, okay. <coughs> I'm not. I'm going to talk about this now. Um, this is some research that came out in Science, one of the, the two journals in the world, scientific journals in the world, Science and Nature, which are the top scientific uh, research journals in the world. Um, this is one that was in science. Russell Teitler is an Australian uh, researcher, and he looked at how drawing was helping students to learn science. And as you can see at the top there, it talks about the byline talks about emerging research suggesting that drawing should be recognised as a key element in science education. This is one of the examples that it gives, and I want to point out a couple of things about this. What they've asked for is for students, in fact, in this case, it was university students, um, to draw um, their understanding of the uh, valves in the heart, how it um, allows blood to flow in one direction. What's interesting to me is that if you look on the left here, this is kind of what a valve looks like. This is a representation if you look on the right, this definitely isn't what the heart valve looks like. And nobody thinks it does. But the understanding that is in this, I can see the depth of understanding that is in this that I can't necessarily see in this. This is very um, technical. Here, there's a depth of understanding. I would say that the thing on the left is a drawing, but the thing on the right is approaching something that's closer to art because there's an interpretation and a representation in here that's not in that left-hand side. Nobody thinks that the student thinks that this is what's going on in the heart, but it shows their understanding. Nobody thinks that the flannimals are real, 
but it shows an understanding. We can get to the concepts, to the depth that's underneath it, not without doing the literal thing. <laughs> I think I am going to skip us on because I am going to run out of time. Let me see if I can go to here. Okay, here we go. Oh, let's go to here. This will do us. Okay, this is a... This is a science, some of you might have seen me talk about this before. This is a science textbook for year seven students. It's about human, the plant and animal systems. This science textbook is supposed to be a problem solving approach. Um, problem solving approach. Great textbook that's just problem solving. So let's have a look at the problem. Your problem is to produce a diagram of the human body showing the digestive, respiratory, excretory, and re- reproductive systems. Where's the problem? What's the challenge? It's an activity. It's, it's using a diagram, drawing, and all I'm doing is reproducing the thing that's in the, in the book. You can do it as a collage, or sheets overlaid, or posters, or a pop-up book. They're pretending it's creative. They're pretending it's art. Just because you're creating something doesn't make it art. They're pretending. There's a pretense in here about some creativity and innovation. And then they, and then they let themselves down with the pretense. Because how are you going to do it? Read the textbook. <laughs> wow. That's not science and arts. That's an activity. So let's shift away from the activity um, and think about problem solving and real problems. One of the teachers that looked at this uh, took it into their classroom and she said to the kids, what's your what-if question about the human body, the digestive system. What are your what-if questions? Some interesting questions. And one of the kids said, what if you didn't have a bum hole? <laughs> Great, we'll have that one. Right, what if you didn't have a bum hole? And now the kids are looking through the book, looking through the textbook. What would happen if you didn't have a bum hole? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. And another kid said, you'd be like a starfish. Well, you know, a starfish, starfish actually doesn't do this, but what the kid said was, a starfish, what it does is it takes its food in through its mouth and digests it. And then, like, the waste, like, you know, like the poo, that comes back out of its mouth again. Oh, God, that's horrible. Ah. That wasn't coming out of that activity because wasn't, it wasn't about possibilities. It was, still li- it was still about represent what I've just told you rather than talking about possibilities. So there's a difference between problem-solving where, you know, what we do is we give kids the bits and pieces. We do this in maths a lot, don't we? We give them the bits and pieces and we ask them to put them together. And it's all convergent thinking. Take these bits of information that I've given you and what, you, what I've taught you before and put them together in a particular way. And There's one way of doing it and this is the way of doing it and that's the answer. That's not problem solving. That's solving a problem, which is different to problem solving. Where we start off with that what if question. And we think about the possibilities. So we've got this divergent thinking. Like the kids who are doing the flanimals, we're doing the divergent thinking. And we shift and say, well, it depends. It depends on all kinds of things. It could be this, it could be this. It could be. Okay, you choose. You do your interpretation. You choose what it depends on. And then do your convergent thinking. And what we know is that there's a, a little step in the middle. And this is the tricky step, which is stopping doing your imaginative divergent thinking and flicking and saying, does this make sense? Does this, you know, what's, what's going on? Does this make sense? Does this have value? Is it useful? 
Um, how will other people might interpret this thing? And of course, we don't just do it once. We do it over and over again. We go through multiple cycles of it, saying, okay, so that's an answer. What are, what are the ways could I take that answer? And then we narrow down again. Then we go out again. Then we go narrow down again. That's what we all do, I think, when we're problem solving. And that definition of creativity is a process, in this case, that's got novelty and produces something that's useful. So that first step of divergent thinking is that it's novel. The second step of the convergent thinking, testing the idea. Is it useful? Does it, is it going to make people feel a different way? Is it going to make them interpret the world in a different way, see things in a different way? This kind of, and another definition says that it's a kind of thinking that produces something that is original and has value. Again, these two steps. So I'm using this, clearly this definition of creativity that Sternberg talks about in the Creativity Handbook, um, where he talks about creativity as an ability to produce something that's novel, that divergent thinking, thinking about the possibilities, and appropriate. That convergent thinking, testing if it's meaningful. The New York writer Rebecca Solnit talked about this when she said that scientists live at the edge of mystery, the boundary of the unknown. Of course, that makes me think about this, that space, that flicking between what's possible and testing whether that's useful or meaningful. I think this is kind of true, and then again, I don't. I think that in our society, this is true. And the examples that I've shown you are these examples, where the arts is providing... Oops. What's going on? Where the arts... is providing for this... The, talking about the possibilities, and the science is doing that second step of the testing. I think we've been culturally pushed into that. Because I think it's fundamentally not true. Because I think that for any scientist who deals with facts isn't a scientist. A, sci a person who deals with facts is someone who's good at a pub quiz. It's not what scientists do. And someone who does imaginative things isn't an artist. I'm not sure what they are, but they're not an artist until they've got that interpretation, the intent, the... Um, that second part about is it meaningful the art the difference of course between the arts and the crafts is that when you look at the arts you've got that interpretation it makes you feel a different thing interpret a different way see the world in a different way it challenges your thinking crafts don't do that it's, creativity isn't creating a thing the creativity has that possibilities and the interpretation the testing the, um, does it have meaning in some way does it have value in some way and so there's a real overlap between the science and the arts. Um, culturally, we've separated them out, and we can use the arts and the possibility, but really, there's much more overlap than that. In uh, Kerry Smith's, Kerry Smith's an uh, a, a artist, and she's written a number of books. One of them is this How to Be an Explorer of the World, which is one of my favourite books. It's favourite so much so that we wrote a book chapter for educators, for science educators, um, for for uh, education students who are doing science and we wrote the first chapter in this science book and the first chapter was don't look at science books look at art books and we used this book as the example in a science textbook how to teach science we started with this art book and one of the reasons why we started with it was because Kerry talks about 
If I'm going to be an artist, I'm going to be an explorer of the world. And these are things that explorers of the world do. We're always looking. We're considering everything to be alive and animate. I'm not sure that's true of scientists. It's possibly true of artists. It might be good guidance for artists, but not for scientists. Everything is interesting. Look closer. That's certainly true of scientists and artists. Look at it in different ways. Alter your course often. Look for long durations and short ones. That's fundamental to science as well as art. Notice the stories, the processes, the narratives going on around you. Notice the patterns and make connections. You can document your findings and you can incorporate indeterminacy. Incorporate indeterminacy. Those things that Google can't tell you. It's, I'm, I'm not sure. It's indeterminable. Where are the, um, where are the uh, mints? Who's got the mints? Where are they? There's three tins of mints. There's one here. Where's the, where's the others? I'll get you to pass those down if you would. Where's the, where's the third tin? Somebody got the third tin of mints? They've eaten them. They must have eaten them. All right. Oh, they're there. Thank you. So this is a... Uh, an activity, thank you very much. This is an activity that um, a primary educator showed me. So in each of these tins, there is exactly the same number of mints. Who thought there was one mint in each tin? Who thought two? Who thought three? Four? Five? More than five? All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to open them and tip them all into one. And, you know, just like scientists, you know, scientists were looking at things like, you know, what's the internal structure of an atom? They had to come up with ideas. They had their best idea. They couldn't actually look inside the atom and find out what, what, what it was. They just had to have their best idea. So what I'm going to do with these is eat them. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> I'll put too, too many in. Um, did this in a class in Wyala, and I asked the kids how they felt about that. And one kid looked me straight in the eye and went, betrayed. <laughs> got to be comfortable with not knowing. You've got to be comfortable with not knowing, whether you're an artist or a scientist. We've got to be comfortable with not knowing, incorporating that indeterminacy. Imagine when I read this book, and Kerry said... Because what we do is this. And for me, where the difference comes, that's Kerry's words, this is me, this is where we do things differently. We all do this, but we do it differently. Our ways of thinking are different. The way in which we're creative and the way in which we do critical thinking is different. We all do it, but it's different. We all do this um, convergent and divergent thinking, but it's not together. It's separate. It's different. It's all valuable. Seeing each other's and the way that we do it with each other's discipline do it is important. It adds value. Doing critical and creative thinking about those animals in biology in a science way, 
takes us somewhere. Pivot, doing it in an arts way, takes us somewhere else. Gives us a different way of looking at it. Drives narrative. Drives student-student interaction. Because we've got disciplinary knowledge and we're asking for interdisciplinary action. Not because we're smushing it all together. When we're talking about the arts in STEM, it can't be assimilated, we'll lose the arts. It can't be integrated, we'll lose everything. There won't be any arts, there won't be any science, there won't be technology, there won't be any engineering, it'll just be integrated stuff. It's got to be multicultural, I think, if we're going to achieve that extra value that we're looking to add for our students. So when people are talking about STEM, don't think about it as one thing, Think about it as four things brought together. When they're thinking about STEAM, hold your ground. Don't let them assimilate you. Take the arts, take your thinking, and help other disciplines, whether it's STEM or others, help other disciplines add value. And take those disciplines and their way of thinking and bring it to the arts and help it add value to you. That, inter that disciplinary knowledge and interdisciplinary action, I think, is going to be crucial for the future empowerment of our young people. Thanks very much. Okay. Uh, thanks very much, Martin. I hope that elicits some thinking amongst you all. I'm sure it will. I find found myself thinking um, uh, dioramas, art or science and hopefully you'll come up with the answer to that and hopefully it'll be the right one um, after Martin's talk because uh, often you see and I see in university students interpretation of how you would introduce art into the curriculum, uh, do a diorama. <laughs> Always looks good um, and you can do all sorts of funny things with them. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, so I want to be clear about it though, but the diorama isn't about just it can't be doing a representation because that won't be the arts or the science. It's got to be the interpretation. It's got to be the driving of the narrative because that's the thing that takes it from just the convergent doing the thing to bringing out the divergent thinking. So all of these things, we could just turn into just activities and I absolutely don't mean that, yeah. Thanks. Okay, so, so yes, be creative. Be imaginative. And don't teach activities is probably what Martin was on about. And I remember um, the TEFL team last year or the year before did a survey. They did a team, a whole year's survey with two different pilot schools and they asked one group of kids after a whole year, how do you want teachers to teach? How do you learn best? And the, the answer these kids gave, quite insightful, said, ask us non-Googleable questions. So I want you to take that away and think about that. Ask us non-Googleable questions because the kids are sick of having to just do the activity of looking it up and regurgitating the facts instead of inquiring. Um, so I hope you enjoyed Martin's speech. Thank you very much again, Martin. Um, it certainly brought some thinking into play there. Um, I just want to remind you now it's morning tea. After morning tea, if you wouldn't mind um, going straight to the galleries that you uh, have been allocated to and Anna Maria is sitting at the table. Now, just before you do move off, um, after lunch, I'll put your participation certificates on this desk, so if you wouldn't mind coming back to get them. And in that last session, and I'm looking for Robin, uh, 
there will be a survey, and it's an online survey, and she'll just explain that very quickly. But I do, I do hope you enjoy your days today and tomorrow. Tomorrow, um, if you can be at the UniSA about 8.30, there's a map that we've put up on the wall here that shows you where to go. Um, we'll have maps of where your rooms are there. So 8.30 tomorrow, um, and we go straight into workshops. It's basically all day. So enjoy your day today. Be creative, and I'll give you over to Robin for this. Oh, okay. I was just wondering if we had... A... I was... Ooh, that's loud. I was just wondering if we had time for a couple of questions to Martin. Uh, because I have a couple. <laughs> Uh, but I, I can just I, I can be quite quick. Um, what uh, my first question was that uh, I can see that this approach works really well in a primary context, and I was wondering about your thoughts on how secondary uh, teachers, secondary art teachers, can make links between science and art in the art classroom without it becoming an integrated approach. That was my first question. I'll ask you the other one later. Um, the, um, there's so many, there's so many construction response because there's so many ways to do it. Let me say it this way around: the SACE, the SACE board. Is, so in the curriculum renewal that will go on, go through rounds and rounds and rounds. These clearly, what's clearly going to happen in South Australia and nationwide is that things like the general capabilities in the curriculum are going to come to the fore. So things like critical and creative thinking. And so the sorts of exams that we've got will change. And as exams go electronic, we'll be asking students for more, um, less knowledge and specific know-how and more interpretation and representation. And so if you think about you know, what's been at the core of the arts, um, I think that's good. we're going to ask for more and more of that. And the reason we're going to ask for more and more of that is because we know that that's the thing that leads to some of that entrepreneurial thinking and also helps the students to transfer their knowledge and know-how to unfamiliar situations. Um, so, so I've not really answered your question, but the first thing is I think there's going to be more demand. You know, we've had this old industrial model with science and math at the top and somehow performing arts and other arts, and particularly performing arts at the bottom. And now what we're seeing is that in the knowledge economy, that's completely flipped over. And so now the performing arts has got everything, and the arts, um, the arts has got um, all the things that the sciences don't have and need. So the, so the, so the, the, so the key is not to try and become pseudo-scientists, and for the scientists not to try and become pseudo-artists, but the disciplinary knowledge and the interdisciplinary action becomes crucial. So the thing about, you know, so me working with patch theatre, that's me not knowing anything about theatre and being willing to just throw myself into the learning pit with a theatre maker, and she's done the same with a scientist, and we're, we're finding spaces together. And so the thing, so the key to it has been creating a space where we're all happy to jump in and just explore the spaces. Um, but the, it, will it will never be, you'll never find a resource that says, do this in your classroom as a scientist, you'll be developing the arts, and do this thing in your classroom as an artist, and you'll be doing the sciences. That's not it. It's the disciplinary knowledge and interdisciplinary action.
We're my concern is that across the country, we're designing STEM spaces that are industrial STEM spaces. We're, we're building labs. Um, there's a guy called Stuart Firestein who, who talks about uh, ignorance, about talking about what we don't know and what we do know in science. Uh, he's a great TED Talk. And in it, he talks about when scientists get together in the bar at a meeting, what they talk about is what they don't know, not what they do know. They might, in the, when they give a talk, they might talk about what they do know. But in the bar, they talk about what we don't know. And so that ability to step from the bar, you know, the metaphorical bar, um, into the lab and from the lab into the bar, and to pivot between the two is crucially important. Education has been, science education in the past has been about the lab. We've not got, we're building lots of labs, but we're not building enough bars in schools, metaphorical bars in schools, <laughs> um, places where kids can talk about what they don't know, and bringing different disciplines together to throw themselves into the pit, to do that interdisciplinary action, to talk about what they don't know and how they're going to find that thing out together. So those bar spaces are more important than the lab spaces. I'll be around for morning tea so we yeah. can... Thank you very much. And thank you very much again. Okay.